Hey, thank you guys so much for um, just experimenting with us like that uh, this Advent season. I think it was um, just really rich and, and um, just such a blessing to not just uh, have the Word of God like proclaimed from the front to all of us, but it's like when we sing, right? When we sing, we're taking these truths of the Lord and we're saying them together, right, to the Lord and to each other. And I feel like this Advent section has been like that, where we've been um, reminding ourselves of the truth and participating in it. And it's just such a beautiful thing. And so great to get to see um, Anne and um, Chelsea using their gifts and um, blessing us in that way. So um, I'm, I'm thrilled and thankful for you guys for um, jumping in and just finding the richness in that. We're going to open the Word of God together. So if you have your Bible, uh, let's go to Matthew chapter 2. And as we do that, um, we, we are in this series called Strong and Weak. And, and as we have been marching closer and closer to the Christmas season or the Christmas day, the, the arrival of Jesus, um, we have been kind of preparing ourselves and following along with Matthew's account of like what, what was it, like what happened when Jesus came to, to the earth. And it's a very familiar story that we know, um, but Matthew has sort of, um, for me at least, he's sort of defamiliarized it a little bit because he starts with that genealogy, and he jumps into um, kind of Joseph's approach to it. And as we look at all these things, what, I, what we've been seeing is there's these power dynamics between what it means to be strong and what it means to be weak in the whole thing. And we're seeing that where we, we would want the coming of God to be something that is strong and impressive, um, God intentionally brought his Savior, his King, into the world in ways that would appear by, by every outward eye looking in would appear to be very weak and very frail and completely insufficient for what the world actually needs. But of course, God always knows better than we do. And so as we jump into it this morning, I, um, there's the, the song, A Little Town of Bethlehem, and it has this line that says, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Speaking of Bethlehem, in Bethlehem has met all the hopes and fears of all the years. Um, and what, what it's referring to is looking back to the nation of Israel that was just hoping, longing, looking. And so I want to take a little quick detour um, back into the past once again, and we're going to look at, um, we're going to look at God's, um, uh, the, the path to which like Israel itself, Israel as a whole came, and they experienced um, Jesus in light, like by way of some of these old prophets. And so I want to take us back four, five, six, seven hundred years before the birth of Jesus. And the prophet Hosea is, is sent by God to his people that have been wayward, um, that have been like away from God. And God sends Hosea into that setting to speak to them. And Hosea, like, like famously, Hosea takes a prostitute for his wife. And that's the picture of Israel, right? That God's love for Israel is coming and saying, I, you've gone away from me, but I still want you. I'm pulling you back again and again. And God speaks these words through Hosea to his people. He says this, when, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burnt offerings to the idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke of their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. I love this beautiful picture of Israel, this nation that's God's nation, and God as their father just coming to them and just saying, um, man, like Israel is my son, right? Out of Egypt, I called my son, and, and the picture of God sort of bending down to feed them or him picking them up and teaching them to walk, and he's just saying, Israel is my child, and I, I love you so much, and yet you keep going away. You keep turning to these other things. You keep turning to idols, and you keep going away from me, and it's the Lord reminding 
his people. You are my children. Around the same time, Isaiah was prophesying. And God sends Isaiah to the nation of Judah as the, the, the kingdom had split off. And, and Judah is the, they're the kingdom of God, but they've had these, um, these rash of bad kings that keep coming in. And they're, um, they're leading the people astray. And Israel is calling them back to faithfulness. And in doing it, he says this. At the end of Isaiah 10, the very end of it, he says, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. So this is, this is tough. Okay, we're all cutting down Christmas trees this time of year, I guess. And um, this is kind of the imagery, is that um, God is saying, like, there's these nations that are rising up in their own strength, thinking how impressive are we, and Israel is doing the same thing. How impressive are we? But God is coming in and just saying, I am not impressed by your pride. I'm not impressed with how strong you think you are. And so God's coming in like a lumberjack and cutting down these trees. But then he says this in Isaiah 11, the very next verse, he says this, There will come a a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So what's happening here is God is coming to his people and all these other nations that are standing up in their strength, and God is coming in and saying, I am not impressed, I don't want this. And so he cuts off the nation of Israel, but looking at then the stump that's left, right? Lifeless, left for dead, right? Lifeless, there comes this shoot out of the side of the stump, this this branch that comes off, and he says, this is where it will come. This is where the righteousness and justice, everything that God is wanting to see in the world, all this life is going to come through this stump. And it's God speaking to a faithless people saying, your faithfulness has led you to this point, but there's more that I have in store for you. And he's leading them into that. Finally, Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the prophet years later than this, and it's now he's speaking, sent to a people that is being led into captivity. And so it is this, it's like the the culmination of all of the hard things. And he pictures um, Rachel. Rachel, who is uh, Jacob's wife, Jacob, whose name became Israel. So Rachel is like one of the mothers of the nation of Israel, and she's weeping, he says, for her children. And this is what he says here. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. And so he's seeing this mother of Israel weeping, and he's saying, yeah, you, you guys are about to be cut off. You've disobeyed. You've gone astray, just like the wayward child that Hosea talked about. But he's saying there's going to come a time where that weeping comes to an end, where, where Rachel is comforted and where the, the children that have been sent out are then coming back and they're going to experience the healing of the Lord. And so as we talk about the hopes and fears of all the years, right, it's, it's exactly this. It's a people that have tried to be strong. They've tried to hold it together. Israel, who throughout all these generations and king after king after king, Some followed the Lord, but most turned aside, and when they ran into trouble, they tried to solve their problems by being strong, by by like mustering the military might, by looking to other nations like Assyria or even Egypt, who was there in slavers before, but saying, would you help us? Would you give us the strength that we need to stand firm and be the kind of nation? 
in all these prophets again and again and again reminding them, no, 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 it's not through your might that's going to save you. It's not your power. It's not being strong that's going to fix everything for you. It's the Lord, and it's his presence, and it's his, his forgiveness, and it's his healing, and it's his way of working that we never expect is what's actually going to bring healing to you. And so these were the reminders, and it lasted like this for hundreds of years until a baby was born. And then we come to Matthew. And here's what we've been looking at. We see Matthew gives us that genealogy that we looked at a few weeks ago of, of, a, of a king that was going to be born, but, but through all of these like different circumstances. There's all these subversions that Matthew is giving us as he sort of um, subverts what it means for Jesus to be this exalted king. And so we, we saw like in, in Jesus' genealogy, there are Gentiles in there, right? He's a Jewish king that's coming through a line with Gentiles in the mix. There are murderers in there. There's adulterers in there. There's prostitutes in there. There's a lot of swindlers in there. And so Jesus is coming to be the savior of his people, but he's not coming to represent the elite and the put together of humankind. He's not coming to represent those that have the power and have been good enough and have kept themselves clean. No, he's coming very clearly, Matthew is showing us, to represent the most oppressed of us all the most broken of us all, the most wicked of us all. This is the one that Jesus is coming to represent, and he's coming in this line, and we're seeing in all of this, right? There's not a royal birth with Jesus. No, he's born to an unwed teenager who can only find a room in a stable, and he's being born in that setting, in that situation. This is where all the power of God is being unleashed on humanity in that setting. In tiny, the tiny little town of Bethlehem, in a stable, in a manger, like all of these things are coming. And Jesus slid beneath the radar of everyone that mattered. And yet here he is, this baby, the strong king of the universe coming in this extremely weak setting. The kings of the earth aren't celebrating him. It's, it's the king of Israel is certainly not celebrating him. It's these um, pagan uh, priests, these like astrologers, the, the magi coming, and, and Nathan did a great job last week of just bringing us into that world. They're the ones that are coming to worship the new king, while the king of Israel is the one that's um, oppressing. And so I think if we're alive at the time of all this, and I, I want to read that, I want to read the first verses. If we're alive at the time, this is what we would have seen um, the king of the universe coming to earth. This is what it would have looked like. So when they departed, when these magi had departed, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. So here is all the power of heaven, okay? And we've seen all these subversions already, the, the crazy genealogy, the, the, the humble birth, and all these kinds of things, right? Now, Jesus kind of grows up, and, and he's maybe got a couple years under his belt of living on earth, um, and, and these, these pagan astrologers are coming and worshiping Jesus. It's very bizarre, all this stuff, right? But then as these astrologers leave, um, here comes the dream, okay? And we might think, all right, rough start, but we're going to build from here. But here's what happens. They leave, and a dream comes to Joseph again. Another whisper from the Lord about what he's going to do for his king. He says, hey, get up and flee. Run, go. Go into Egypt, like slip out through the night, and go and hide because Herod is going to try to kill this child. And so Jesus starts, right, this, this, this really weak beginning. And then, like, think of the weakness of Jesus. To, to have no other options 
than to run for your life in the middle of the night. Like that is about as weak as it gets. That's the, like the most desperate situation that humanity gets to. There's, there's like so many refugees in the world, and there have been, and it looks like this, a tyrant, someone who's ruling a, a nation that is, that is doing it in a way where there's all this oppression, there's this injustice, and people have literally no options but to leave their whole life behind and to flee under the cover of darkness, just like Jesus and his family did, and come to another nation where you don't know the language, and you're just saying, I hope we can kind of make a start here or find something here, because anything's better than the, the certain death or oppression that we were facing back home. That's Jesus. That's the God of the universe. That's the one who holds all power that could, with a snap of his fingers, just fix it all, fix every kingdom of the earth. Instead, Jesus comes into this dire situation, and his family is forced to flee, forced to be foreigners in a different land. If we want to see what God is up to in the world, we would think, let's look at the palace. Let's talk to King Herod. Let's look and see what the prophets, what they're up to. But instead, if you wanted to see the life-changing, the all-powerful things that God was doing in his plan of redemption at this moment of, in- of history, you would have had to have been standing on the outskirts of Bethlehem watching this tiny little family with this tiny little two-year-old kid or, or younger running off into the night in fear for their lives, running out through the wilderness to the distant land of Egypt. Egypt, the place where famously God's people had been enslaved for 400 years before God had led them free from that. And so here's where we find Jesus. Here's where we find the whole plan of God to fix the world right this moment, right here. And they're out there and they're running. And then look at this. Look at how Matthew ties this in. Matthew looks at that situation and he thinks back to the prophet Hosea and he says this at the end of verse 15. He says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. You see the hopes and the fears of all the years. It's, it's God had spoke so long. Israel, you are my child, you are my son, and I brought you out of Egypt. I led you out of there, and you were so wayward, but I led you out, and I fed you, and I carried you. And here, Matthew's saying, this is it. This is what Hosea was getting at. Yes, Israel was God's child, but here we go. We're getting another opportunity where now Jesus, who's going to represent Israel for us, Jesus is now being born, and he's being taken into, into Israel so that we get another shot of this child growing up, God's son growing up, and he's going to grow up, and it's going to be all the things that Israel was never able to attain to. But here's Matthew sees all of this coming together. Jesus, it's just remarkable to me, Jesus being willing to come and be human, Jesus being willing to come and be so weak and so vulnerable, but even this, Jesus being willing to go back into Egypt, into the, the spot where they were enslaved, into the spot where they were oppressed. And God is working, but it's not always bigger, better, not always, um, not always happier, right? God works in these dark, hard times, and we can see Matthew's helping us to know God led him into the wilderness for a purpose, for a reason. So now, let's go uh, a couple verses further here. Um, in verse 16, we see this. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region um, who, were, who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So here we have... Um, Herod now. He's responding to this. So Jesus has flown under the radar, but with the, with the magi coming, um, Herod's alert, and he's saying, okay, there's a king being born. I've got my, my eyes set. And so he finds, okay, anyone two years old or younger, like any boys in this region, um, they're going to be killed. And it is the classic, like, misuse of power. I mean, it's, it's so monstrous. And he's doing it because he's trying to cling to his own power in the midst of this whole thing. 
Um, and one of the scholars I was reading for this is N.T. Wright, and he was talking about a time that he preached at Christmas, and somebody came up to him and said, you know, I love Christmas because it's just so non-controversial, right? Because who, who could possibly get upset about a baby being born, right? Like, that's so easy. And, and, and Tara's saying, well, you didn't read the story very closely, right? Because even at the first point, all it is, yes, it's a baby being born, but even at the beginning, the king of the time, Herod, knew what this meant. And so he went and he kills all the babies in Bethlehem and the region around them because he knows what this means and he's so desperate to hold on to his own power. We see the, the power dynamics that are happening here as God comes in weakness, but Herod tries to respond with his own flex, with his own strength. There's a perfect opportunity for Herod as the king of Israel to, to be the one that stewards God's plan forward, right? Here's, here's the hopes and fears of all the years. I'm going to, um, let's celebrate this baby, right? Let's, um, I don't know what they would do. Let's like institute Christmas in Bethlehem. Let's celebrate this whole thing. But instead he responds by trying to wipe the whole thing out. Instead, he, instead of doing what the Magi had done and coming to worship Jesus, the new king, um, he worships himself, basically, and, and puts to death all these other kids. I mean, the contrast is huge, right? You have Jesus uh, coming as a child, right? The God of all the universe coming as a child to lay down his life so that all of his children can live, right? And then meanwhile, on the flip side, you have Herod, the king, who is actually putting to death all of the children so that he can maintain his own standard of living and hold on to his power. It's ugly and it's messy, and then, and then there's this. I, um, I've been reading in my own personal Bible reading um, in the book of Exodus. And, um, and I had never thought about this or noticed it before, but there's actually magi in the Exodus story too. Um, so these magi, these sorcerers from a foreign land, these are coming from the east. But down south in Egypt, there was these magi as well, these sorcerers, these magicians that served in um, Pharaoh's court. And so Moses gets sent to um, Pharaoh to say, let my people go, but there's these sorcerers and magicians. And so Moses' rod turns into a snake, right? And then these sorcerers are able to turn their rods into snakes as well. And what's crazy to me is they're using their power, Pharaoh in conjunction with these like sorcerers, they're using their power to, to show like we're better than God, we're stronger, we're good enough, we don't need your God and we don't have to listen to what he says. And what's crazy is, okay, so Moses, God sends Moses to um, turn all the water into blood, okay? So the Nile River, all the water turns into blood. And then here's these sorcerers that are going to prove their own power. And so what they do is they somehow find some other water and they turn it to blood as well, right? To say like, hey, look it, we're powerful also. But the reality is, is right, that would have been a nice time to have some extra water on hand, right? But to, pull, to show their power, they're turning more of the water into blood, right? And the first couple of plagues, they do that same thing. They add to the plagues to try to show their power. And here we have with Herod in this story now, we have an example of he's going to repeat the mistake of Pharaoh who tried to kill all the Hebrew babies, right? And Moses is miraculously spared. But here's Herod probably unwittingly stepping into the role of Pharaoh and killing these Hebrew babies. Instead of just being like the good magi, the ones from the east that came and they laid down their gifts and their treasures and they worshiped Jesus as this infant rather than holding on to their own power. All we have to do is worship, bend the knee and worship, and it would have been a better outcome. And see, this is, this is crazy that this happens, okay? It's crazy that this is in our Christmas story. Christmas is hard for a lot of us for different reasons. Whether it's loss, whether it's the fact that you're face-to-face -face with your family and that's tough, 
Um, wh- like, whatever it is, like, Christmas can be really hard. And I think sometimes it feels inappropriate that Christmas is hard, right? It's supposed to be this happy time. It's supposed to be joyful. And yet we find ourselves, like, really struggling and wrestling and hurting at Christmas. D- DUIs are up like crazy. Um, suicides go up. Depression goes up. All these things at Christmas time. And we think it's supposed to be happy. But the first Christmas wasn't, right? The first Christmas was heavy. And there's this, this murder of babies. Now, in, in Bethlehem at the time, Bethlehem in the region was a very small area. And so if you count up all the, like, babies, that there were male babies there would have likely been at the time, scholars estimate maybe around, like, 20, like, male babies that were killed at this time. That was nothing to Herod. Herod was, like, awful, like, notoriously awful. So he was, like, famous for putting to death political rivals. He'd have them killed, including three of his own kids, his own sons he killed because he did not want them taking the throne. And so 20 little babies um, in, his, in his, um, this region doesn't matter to him. But the reminder is the first Christmas is this celebration of God coming to be with us, not to fix our suffering, but entering at a really gross time in terms of human suffering. Jesus came to be with us, and he wasn't there immune from it, right? He was there, and he had to flee. He had to run for his life in the night. There's this, um, there's this interplay between the strong and the weak that we see in all this. And so how does Matthew frame it? Matthew says all this. He gives us the raw account, and then he dips back, and he looks at what we saw before with Jeremiah. He says, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So Matthew takes us back and he sees Rachel, this mother of the nation of Israel, sees her weeping and he says, yep, once again, this poor nation is forced to weep and lament. But if we remember, we remember that in Jeremiah, there was this reminder that there was this uh, suffering and this crying and this lament, but there was this promise of joy, right? Her mourning is going to turn into joy, and we're going to see that with Jesus as the story goes on. Jer- Jeremiah 31 is, is about the end of the exile. God's people have been cast off. They've been set aside, but it's a reminder that there's an end to that, and we're going to see with Jesus this is exactly it. He enters into this weeping moment of history, experiences it with us, and then brings an end to it, turns it to joy. And then finally this. Um, the last few verses here. Matthew um, 2, verse 19. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. And when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So now we have Jesus and his family in Egypt, and now Herod has died. Okay, so again, like Jesus is, does not have all this political might. He doesn't have an army at his disposal at this point. So he has no, no power other than let's wait for this evil ruler to die. And when he dies, he goes back, and he can't quite return back to where he's supposed to go because Herod's son is ruling over that part, and he's off to a bad start too and wicked. And so he goes instead to this region of Galilee because that's where this like vulnerable Jesus and this little family can survive and thrive. And so God leads them back in all this weakness, in all this um, turmoil, leads them back to this area. And, um, and we see that, okay, there they are. Now, look at, look at what's happening. Matthew is drawing a parallel, I think, in this whole thing between Israel as a nation and between Jesus. There's so many crazy similarities here, okay? So what we see is that Jesus, just like Israel, Israel as a nation found refuse, refuge in Egypt, 
When, when Israel went to Egypt in the first place, if you recall, because there was this famine, right? Remember Joseph and the whole famine and everything? And so Israel and, and the, the whole nation of Israel was just a family, a big family at the time, and they go to Israel to find refuge there, right? Jesus came to, Is- to Egypt to find refuge there, right? But then um, Israel gets enslaved in Egypt, and so they're, they're this massive nation, and there's the killing of the babies and all that stuff, but then what does God do? God leads them out of Egypt. Out of Egypt, I've called my son, right? And Jesus, now we see, being led out of Egypt. And Matthew repeats it, out of Egypt, I've called my son, right? What does Israel do when they're led out of Egypt? They go through the Red Sea, right? The the miraculous partings of the water. They go through the water, and they go through the wilderness, 40 years in the wilderness, and they finally eventually enter into the promised land, the kingdom of God. And what does Jesus do? He comes out of Egypt here, we see it, And if we keep reading in Matthew, what we find is that Jesus goes and he gets baptized in the Jordan River. He goes through the water in a sense. Then he immediately goes into the wilderness, not for 40 years, but for 40 days, right? And he's in the wilderness. And then he comes out of the wilderness and he begins to proclaim the kingdom of God is here. And so Matthew is helping us to see everything that God has always wanted to do for this kingdom of Israel, for this nation, for his people, his children Israel. He's doing it again with Jesus And whereas Israel, man, time and time again made the mistake of trying to cling to their power and look to their might and try to be good enough and strong enough or at least reach out to the people around them who were good and smart enough, Jesus is going to be the one that steps out in all of this humility, in all this quietness, with all these just whispers and all these rumors and all these things that he's not working that hard to dispel. And Jesus just goes in meekness and humility and he begins to show the true power of God that is not about having everything in your life all in order. It's not about being strong enough to handle everything. It's simply about following God a step at a time. And it's fascinating. So far in this story, we have not seen Jesus claim or try to gather power at all, not even once. And it's remarkable to read through Matthew and see how far you can go before Jesus starts claiming power for himself and trying to look powerful in any way. In fact, as Jesus goes and he starts doing actually powerful things, healing people and things like that, He's quick to tell him, hey, don't tell anybody about this. He's not asserting his power. He's helping and he's leading. And he's just with his people in all this. Here's how Matthew ends it. Um, At the very end here, he's gone into Galilee and it says, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. And here's the trickiest one, okay? So if you look at, um, if you do a search in your Bible in the Old Testament for he will be called a Nazarene. You won't find anything, okay? So he's saying, he, and he doesn't say it's a prophet says this. He says, this is what the prophets were talking about, that he's going to be called a Nazarene. The, the, best, uh, the best bet, every scholar is like, I think this is the one, okay? It goes back to Isaiah 11, okay? And we looked at that at the beginning, the stump of Jesse. And there's a shoot or a branch that comes off of that stump, this new way that God's going to work. And the Hebrew word for shoot or branch is Natser. Nazar, think of Nazareth, Nazar. This is the branch. This is the new thing that God is doing. And Jesus is there, right? In, he's, a, he's called a Nazarene. He's called a new branch. And he's living in this town called Nazareth. And he is going to be everything that God is doing. It didn't work through Israel being this strong, great tree. God had to lop that off. But he brought this branch and this shoot off from the side. And God's working. So, where are we at? Where are we at in our lives right now? How are we feeling? How are we doing with Christmas and with life and with pandemic and with the roller coaster of everything that's happening in life and all the uncertainties that we have yet to figure out and that we never will? How are we doing 
with all of it, I know for a fact that in this church family, there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of frustration. Um, you're hurt by family members. You're hurt by yourself. You're hurt by your church family. Like, we hurt each other a fair amount. Like, it just happens. There's pain, and there's confusion, and there's need, and there's illness, and there's all these things that are happening. And I think this Christmas, this, this is an invitation for us to just kind of let that idea of strong and weak sink in, Okay. And I invite you not to be strong enough to get through things this Christmas or this next year or anything like that. I invite you not to be strong enough because the reminder is you're not. You're not strong enough. Like you, you feel like you are for a time, but you're not strong enough. And here's the reality. God made us to be weak. We talked about the jars of clay not that long ago. God made this immense treasure to sit in these jars of clay to show that the surpassing power comes from God and not from us. And so let's sit in that weakness Let's sit in the frailty. Let's sit in how tenuous everything is, right? Some of you guys are going to family relationships this Christmas season that didn't go so great last year. Some of you are going back. But just go in the frailty and the fragility of that. Go in the weakness of that. Go not knowing what you're going to do or how it's going to happen. And that, that's true for family dynamics, and it's true for uh, cancer diagnoses. It's true for everything that we encounter. We are not made to be strong, and, and we're only ruining things more when we pretend to be. And so let's sit in that weakness. Let's recognize that we have a Savior who came in weakness, but that weakness was the greatest strength. And let's watch him transform and heal and move as he relives the story of Israel through Jesus, and I think also through our lives as well. We're going to continue to worship, and let's pray as we process that. Lord, I thank you so much that you are the God who sees and experiences everything that we experience. And Lord, I, I confess that I often do feel um, like I need to have it together, that I need to be able to do it, that I, that's my job, that's my role as a, as a husband, as a pastor, as a human being. And Lord, I thank you for reminders like this that that is not what it's about, that, that holding on to our power or building ourselves up has never been the way, that it's always led to more hurt and pain and destruction. And so Lord, I pray that we'd receive and, and respond to your invitation to just simply be in this weakness with you and to celebrate it, to celebrate this fragile, vulnerable moment in redemptive history where you came as an infant, where you had to flee in the night, but where, Lord, in that, through that, your plan of redemption was taking root, was taking shape, and Lord, what a beautiful thing that we can be here now and we can see everything that has come through your giving of your son for us, your giving of your life for us, the healing and the forgiveness that we have, the fact that we can be simply who we are, that you know who we are, that you love us as we are, and you offer us healing, cleansing, redeeming, transforming. Lord, you are so, so good. And I pray that we would remember that this Christmas season. Remember that you are good. Remember that you love us. Remember that we don't need to achieve because we can't, that all of it comes to us in you. Lord, thank you that you welcome us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.